0: One time, I was speaking at the University of Texas at Austin. It was June, it was kind of hot, and for lunch they had brisket out on the lawn under a tent. So everybody ate a lot of brisket, and they've been listening to people talk Friday night, Saturday morning. It, It was a long time, and so when everybody came back in the room, I was the first speaker after lunch. And it was an evangelical gathering, but it was on um, truth, beauty, and goodness. And they asked me to speak on beauty. So I was talking about icons. And you never know in a Protestant setting when you talk about icons, if people are going to be resistant. If they think, you know, that's idolatry. Some, some Protestants object very deeply to the whole concept of icons. So I'm, I'm talking to the group and I feel like I'm just not connecting with them. I'm just not feeling that, that click, like they're really listening. Or I, I thought, I don't know if they're, are they resisting this? Do they not like what I'm saying? Does it not make sense to them? Um, something's just not quite right here. So, you know, we finished, we had the other speakers and got to the end of the day, and I went to the local Orthodox Church for Vespers that night, that Saturday night. And I was talking to a young man who had been there. Um, he was standing in the back of the room, and I was, he said, oh, you know, the, the talk went so well, and I said, I don't know, I just, I just wasn't sure if I was really, you know, did they object to what I was saying? I didn't feel like the, it was clicking, really. And he said, oh, no, no, I was in the back of the room. I could see the whole room. All around the whole room, heads were nodding. <laughs> That's the danger of speaking after lunch, especially a nice big satisfying lunch. Is heads are nodding <laughs> everywhere you see. So um, I always I know how awful it is when you just feel like you're dozing off and you have to keep waking up. That's why I say you have permission to doze off. It's being recorded. You can hear it later. So, <laughs> so we talked this morning about prayer and fasting, and uh, I wanted to focus the whole last talk. On the concept of almsgiving, which um, means giving to the poor, it's separate from your giving to the church. It's giving directly to the needy, to the ill, to whatever, Um, you know, ministry is trying to help people. And because of the, um, that's kind of a narrow focus. So as I was saying earlier this morning, I kind of um, open up the word almsgiving and, and say that it means charity which is the Latin word caritas for love. So we're going to broaden that a little bit. Of course, it, it does include giving to the poor. So um, we'll start with that, and then we'll kind of progress through. Um, certainly, almsgiving itself to the poor is what has always been a very significant and elemental, fundamental, um, spiritual discipline. We see Jesus talking about it as he sees the Jewish leaders around him doing their own almsgiving and giving to the poor. So it's long entrenched. It's, it's a very ancient spiritual discipline. I sometimes hear people saying, you know, what, what constitutes almsgiving? How much do you have to give? And sometimes I hear people saying, it isn't a spiritual discipline until it stretches you. You have to give to the point that you really feel it. Uh, And I think that's very sincere and well-meaning advice but it's not really very clear because just how much are you supposed to feel? What does it mean to feel it? And what are you supposed to feel? Do you just feel a pleasant sense of self-satisfaction because you've been giving to the poor? Um, Have you given so much that that what you feel is panic because you don't have enough money left to make it through the month? How much would you have to give in order to feel less guilty about being a 21st century American? You know, we are ahead of what even kings and princes had, the kind of comforts and foods they had a couple of hundred years ago. We live such a comfortable life. So how much do you have to give before that's not overwhelming to contemplate? Um, But even if you were reduced to the point that you were Living in a, um, a burned-out tenement in the middle of Baltimore, you would still be living better than someone in another nation that's living in a garbage dump. So the, it's very hard to know what feeling it actually means, and what are the what are the what's the goal? What should you be aiming for, and what you're trying to do with your giving? Um, and so it's going to be different points for different people where you're quote feeling it, and I think that's. That's very fitting because of what we see in the New Testament, and the Gospels, because the Lord's call was different to different people. To the rich young young ruler, Luke 18.22, he said, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor. That's a call that our Lord has repeated many times in history. For example, St. Hilarion of Gaza. Also, he, his parents died, he inherited riches, and he gave it all away. So sometimes it's a 100% is what God's calling for. But in the case of the tax collector Zacchaeus, Luke 19, 8, and 9, he said, half of my goods I give to the poor instead of 100%, 50%. And um, that's, uh, uh, the Lord said, today salvation has come to this house. So he approved of the 50% as well. And then the, the widow who only gave two little copper coins, and he said that she had been justified by that, Mark 12:42 to44. So it's kind of like with fasting, each person has to find the right level that is right for them to be a spiritual discipline, of almsgiving, of giving to the poor, and uh, shouldn't pay too much attention, also like fasting, to what other people are giving. But as with fasting, there is a general guideline, and it's called the tithe. That's an old English word which means 10%. And um, Old Testament, in Malachi 3.10, it says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse. So that's 10% of income. I once heard a, a preacher on the radio say, the Bible shows you three different alternatives. You can take your choice. Christ told the rich young ruler to give 100%. And he praised Zacchaeus for giving 50%, and the Old Testament is 10%. Take your pick. (laughs) My husband and I began tithing, giving 10% when we were newly married, when we were brand-new Christians. We were very poor seminarians at the time, earning $40 a week for cleaning a church. But we always took out that $4 and put it in the collection plate. We always paid the 10% First of all, first thing in the month, and before taxes, this is a question people have, you know, what, do you do it before or after taxes? We always did it before taxes. We felt that you should pay pay God before you pay Caesar, but not everybody agrees with that. In the beginning, we divided it. We gave 5% to the church and 5% to various charities, but we came to a decision that just as the Lord says in that verse in Malachi that I just read, bring all the tithes into the storehouse. The storehouse must be the church. And we were giving half the tithes to the church, half to other causes. So we became convicted that we should give the full 10% before taxes to the church. And we have been doing that all our lives, ever since 45 years now, I guess. We've always given 10% to the church. And... um, we have never suffered for it. God has always taken care of us. We planned when our kids were young, we just lived as, as cheaply as we could. And we even decided that we would raise our children on powdered milk instead of bottled milk because the, you know, the studies they had then said nutritionally, it's exactly the same. Now I'd say it probably isn't, but at the time I thought it was. So we were cutting expenses every single place we could. My kids got a lot of their clothes from thrift shops. Everything I have on almost all the time comes from a thrift shop. So we live very cheap and we gave the 10%. First thing of the month, give the 10% to the church. This can sound overwhelming if you've never thought of it before, if you've never considered giving 10%. So what we always taught in our church, um, the Church Holy Cross that my husband founded, he would preach about tithing once a year and he would say, "If um, you know, you might not be able to just jump right out and start giving that much, so figure out how much you have been giving. Go back, look over the last year. What was the total amount you gave? What was the total amount of income? What percentage was that? So this year, this coming year, give the same percentage. And next year, try to raise it by a half a percentage point, point. and just keep raising it a little bit at a time as you're able to, as your budget will allow you to. Um, The the tithe is is what's kind of given as the standard in Malachi, and it's obviously what the people, the devout people of Jesus' time was giving to the temple. Um, But it can take a little while to work up to it if you've never considered that before. If you get good at this, though, there's no reason you have to stop at 10%. You can keep going. And I can use the example of Pastor Rick Warren, who has a megachurch in California called the Saddleback Church. Uh, when he wrote the, the book, The Purpose Driven Life, it was so overwhelmingly successful and he made so much money that he went back and paid back to the church all the salary they had ever given him. He repaid the church all his salary and still continued to make so much off the book that they live on 10% of their income and give away 90%. So it's a, it's a heroic standard and um, I, I think it's so admirable, I always like to tell people about it. But returning to reality, this idea of beginning with a biblical percentage and trying to gradually increase it as you're able, it, it alleviates the constant worry about, am I giving enough? Is this what I should be giving? How much do I have to feel it? You know, How much do I have to stretch it? Um, It kind of clears that up. If you can say, okay, last year I gave 2%. Next year I'll give 2.5%. And I'll just keep trying to creep up closer to the tithe as as I'm able to as as the years go by. So um, as I said, God has never failed to bless us in all these years. We've never been without the necessities of life. We have so many times been surprised. Um, Even way back in the days when... Before the internet, you'd, if, you had a check, if you had a savings account, when you made a deposit or a withdrawal, you'd give this little book to the, um, to the teller, and she would write in it, you know, what the total was. When we were in, still in seminary, there were at least twice, maybe more often, when I handed it back, there had been a deposit of fifty dollars, and we didn't know where that money had come from this happened you know, at least twice, maybe more, there would be this surprise extra $50 in our bank account. <coughs> I really do feel that God has always taken care of us in that way. I can, I can give you another and a stranger kind of a story. Um, in the, the town where we lived outside of Baltimore, there was a shopping center and there was a grocery store there. So one day I went to that store. It was one I hardly ever went to, but just that day I happened to go. And I parked, and as I was walking across the little bit of parking lot before getting to the sidewalk that led to the store, I saw something crumpled up on the ground. And it was kind of greenish, grayish. I thought, is this a leaf? But there are no trees around here. So I picked it up and unfolded it, and it was a $50 bill. So I didn't know what to do. So I kind of stood near the door to the, the store, just looking around, looking in and looking out to see if there was anybody that was like looking for something they dropped. But after a while, I hadn't seen anybody do that. Nobody came back, you know, to the store like they were looking for something. So I thought, well, that's, that's kind of odd. That was a nice gift of God, I suppose. That's, that's something. That's kind of a sweet story. Here's where it gets weird. Years later... It's no longer a grocery store. It's been bought and sold, and now it's a Best Buy. But same scenario: I park the car. I'm walking. I'm on the the, the yeah, asphalt parking lot just before you step up onto the um, sidewalk, and I see something crumpled on the ground, and I picked it up, and it was a one hundred dollar bill. So. <laughs> It kind of gave me the creeps, you know? It just seemed, it seemed so specific that it would happen exactly like that a second time. So they, as they always say, you can't outgive God. If you are faithful in your, in your giving and your tithing, if possible, and your giving to alms and to others, um, God takes care of you. That certainly is what we found. Um, and again, the the word tithe is the 10% that, as we see in Malachi, is supposed to go to the church. Money that you're giving to the poor or to various charities, that's almsgiving, so that's beyond. Um, we were giving 5% to the church, we were giving 10%, 5% to the church, 5% to charity. At this time, it was a friend of ours who was a missionary. And we both had that conviction that you're supposed to bring the full tithe into the storehouse. So overnight, we had to go to 10% to the church plus 5% to a missionary. So that was kind of a shock, but we felt it was the right thing to do. And through all these years, we've always given 10% to the church, and the amount to other um, charities and, and people in need and missionaries has varied from f- another 5 to 7%. Sometimes, you know, some months as high as a 20% giving, but usually between 15 and 17 total. So that's just a little bit about the financial side of almsgiving, but that's just the tip of the iceberg, of course, you're also supposed to be charitable toward everybody that you interact with, whether it's online or in person, whether it's friends, families, neighbors, even though some of these may be people that you don't really find very lovable, you're still supposed to love them and this is how alms-giving expands and becomes more than simply charitable giving but love toward everyone even toward people who hurt us we have to love the victims of poverty and injustice but what's much more difficult we have to love the, vic- the people who inflict poverty and injustice we have to love our enemies and so we have to forgive those who injure us or hurt us this isn't this is isn't just a good deed, it's also a spiritual discipline, obviously. It's designed to change us, just as prayer and fasting change you. The goal of loving everyone, even loving your enemies, is also an ascesis, and it is designed to to stretch you and increase your capacity to hold the presence of God. Until you get to the point where you can be consistently loving to every person that you meet. Um, As Dave Barry says, the nice guy who is mean to the waiter is not a nice guy. And C.S. Lewis has a wonderful line about, any person that you meet would be, if you saw them in their final state, in God's will and what they've made of themselves through their lifetime. If you saw them in their final state, you would want to flee from them like a monster or you would be tempted to fall down and worship them because of their radiance. You never meet an ordinary human being. Everybody has an eternal destiny that they're working out day by day by one decision after another, one decision after another. You know, the Matthew 25 parable that Jesus gave about the sheep and the goats, separating the sheep from the goats. um, Something I noticed about that, we tend to think of that as being judging like a a judge, judging a, a case and deciding who's guilty and who isn't. But I thought, you know, really what he's describing, it's a lot more like judging a livestock show. He's he's just looking at these examples of sheep and goats coming toward him. And you don't have to study it a lot. You can tell them apart. You just send them one way or the other. You can just tell at a glance. And he will be able to tell us at a glance, over the course of a lifetime, day by day, all the decisions we make, did you turn yourself into a sheep or a goat? It's what you've made of yourself at the end of that time that will enable him at the judgment to say, you go to the right, you go to the left. It will be very easy to tell which we have become by our day-to-day lives. That's the test, as I said this morning, of whether your spiritual disciplines are actually working. It's not how much you give or how long you pray. It's in the rest of your life, how loving are you? How well are you able to bear love to others? Um, And the ones who particularly test you, the ones who are not very lovable, Even loving your enemies, even loving people who have the power to hurt you and perhaps do hurt you. This is a very difficult thing, I think, understanding about how to deal with injustice and correct injustice at the same time having love for the person who has inflicted it. So if you're becoming a more loving person in the rest of your life, that's how you would be able to tell if your spiritual disciplines are actually being effective. This spiritual exercise of trying to love others is is wonderfully handy because the other people are just about everywhere you look. It's always, you know, everywhere you look, there's another person. You can practice being loving to them. It's a constant opportunity, even more than fasting and prayer. It's all the time they're there. St. Theophan the Recluse, who was a recluse, you know, who was a hermit, he said that, this is one advantage of not being a hermit if if you're in the world and you're surrounded by other people. He said in solitude you have to imagine that somebody hurts you or insults you and then you have to imagine how gracious you would be in forgiving them and loving them and all this. And um, he says that has about as much impact on your soul as the wing of a fly. It just doesn't really have any impact at all. But if you're dealing with other people who rouse your anger or your envy or your fear, and you actively work to overcome those negative emotions, those surging reactions, St. Theophon says that kicks them in the head. That swiftly dispenses with these temptations. In my book, The Illumined Heart, I, I have a couple of chapters about this. The Illumined Heart, The Ancient Christian Path of Transformation, for the course of that book, I invented a couple that I call Theodore and Anna, and I say that Theodore and Anna are living in the Middle East in the 4th or the 5th century, and I use them ex- as examples. As they, as you go through the book, it's, you know, now they're fasting. What is Anna cooking for this fast day? Try to show what it's like. Now the little boy has to go to confession for the first time. What is confession like? And um, as they as they go through their lives I'm able to show how ancient Christians might have lived these various things. So I say that um, every, every Sunday Anna and Theodore and their three children go for dinner at Theodore's mother's house, Anna's mother-in-law, and it's very hard on Anna. Theodore's mother is named Irene and she's very beautiful, she's very accomplished, and brilliant and, and even musically talented. She's very intelligent and she, her appearance is always perfect. Every hair of her head is just in place. So when they arrive at Irene's house every week, Anna's kind of disheveled from the kids pulling on her, always feels like the country mouse, you know, like, how can I compete with this? And um, in Irene's house, while they're at dinner, the, the kids who are very well behaved at home, now their table manners look terrible, and Irene has a way of not saying anything but just kind of clearing her throat that makes Anna so indignant. <laughs> and she doesn't know how to deal with it. Um, she, Anna starts thinking, I could maintain my veneer of holiness a whole lot better if I didn't have to go to dinner at Irene's house. And, and that's true. That's why she has to go to dinner at Irene's house. It is... It is experiencing things like that, running into people that that pull things up out of us, that offer us the best opportunities to get at our instinctive and our deep-rooted sins. Anna is pretty good-natured. She gets along with people very easily. It takes the sting of Irene's condescension to pull out of her the pride that Anna has inside, the the desperate craving she has to be admired. For Anna, going to dinner at Irene's house is a better arena for ascetic struggle than being in a cave in the desert. In some providential way, God has designed for Anna and Irene to be stuck together in this life, to have to be living their lives side by side. They are partners in each other's process of theosis. Anna needs Irene, because Anna gets along pretty well for other people. She needs Irene's condescension, whether it's real or whether she's just imagining it, to flush these pride, you know, these prideful feelings out of of hiding. When it's brought so persistently to Anna's attention, she can begin learning how to defeat it. And Irene needs Anna, too. Irene Anna doesn't know this, but Irene has to get herself thoroughly prayed up for those Sunday dinners. Not saying anything doesn't come naturally to Irene. She has to bite her tongue, and when she does, she knows that Anna is helping her, too, get at her own deepest sins, bringing them out of hiding so she can cope with them and do something about them. In our communities, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, but I think particularly in families, people are put together with each other. They're stuck together. And I picture it being kind of like a three-legged race, like you'd have at a picnic where two people tie a leg together and then they race against all the other three-legged people and try to cross, who's going to cross the finish line first as you hobble along. And of course you fall down a lot if you're in a three-legged race. Um, Oftentimes these other people are there to bring out of hiding to draw to the surface our stubborn sins so we can recognize them and deal with them and overcome them, as St. Theophon says, kicking them in the head. Bundled together in families in a giant seven or nine or 15-legged pack, we seem to make very, very poor progress, of course. We regularly are falling to the ground in a heap and bickering with each other. But God put us together that way. And he appointed every other person in your bundle, especially for you, and you for them. The person who irritates you the most may have been appointed as the specific cross that you need to bear in this life so you can understand yourself better. And it may be the cross that ends up saving your soul in the long run. So how we deal with other people on a moment-by-moment basis, even how we think about other people, is either advancing our healing in Christ or it's damaging our souls. When we're aware of what we're really like and aware of our tendency to react out of self-love and defensiveness and fear of death, it helps us maintain our humility and prioritize love toward others. So we need to keep in mind always Christ's command to love one another and keep hopping toward the finish line as we're all tied together and falling down pretty frequently. Um, Talking about family, friends, people, you're stuck together in this life, but I did want to spend some time also on the big issue of injustice. Um, Can we actually love our enemies? Does that mean just being passive and overlooking the evil that they do? There's a paradox in scripture that I didn't notice until a few years ago. That <clears throat> Micah 6.8 says, do justice. But on the other hand, Jesus says, Matthew 7.1, judge not. So how can you do justice without identifying injustice? How can you stop wrongdoing without judging that someone is doing wrong? How do you how do you balance that? And making it even harder, there's a whole spectrum between what is clearly bad and what is clearly all right. We know not to judge someone else's fasting or their prayer life. But what about somebody who never gives to charity or never gives to the church? Can we, can we judge that? Is that wrong enough that we have the right to critique it? Consider another situation. Just, you know, amping it a little bit. What if it's a... Um, a man that leaves his wife and takes up with a younger woman, is it okay to judge that? What about um, someone who beats his wife? You know, what about violence? Can we, are we now at the point where we can judge it? What about somebody who buys and sells slaves? There's this whole spectrum, and I think it's not clear where the dividing point is. Certainly people disagree about when you've got to stand up and say, this is injustice, it has to stop and when you're just supposed to let other people work out their own salvation. The Desert Fathers and Mothers had an approach that differs from our expected categories. They didn't have any confusion about good and evil behavior. They took a very pessimistic view of human nature in general. They didn't hesitate to name a sin and to call it sin. And they agreed with St. Paul that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But while they spoke that way about sin in general, in dealing with particular individuals, especially penitent people, those who are in repentance, in dealing with a person who had sinned, but was penitent, they were very gentle and very kind. They didn't keep rubbing it in, they didn't keep saying what a terrible thing you've done. Repentance was enough to elicit their gentleness and their kindness. And they formed the habit of recognizing the failings in themselves, and seeing the good in other people. They took seriously the Lord's command, do not judge. One of the desert fathers, um, Abba Theod- Theodore of Elefthros, Theropolis, said, if you are chaste, do not judge another person who is promiscuous. For you would then transgress the law just as much. For the Lord said, do not commit fornication. He also said, do not judge. For you don't, judge another person, but you do sometimes have to say this is right and this is wrong. You can name it in kind of a general way, but don't accuse a particular person. It doesn't mean that we pretend that actions that are unjust, for example, are good things to do. Sometimes evil has to be challenged. Sometimes love means intervening in a situation. But any intervention must not be motivated by vengeance, or self-righteousness. Instead, we have to see ourselves as equally sinful, equally in need of mercy. Our goal has to be restoring the person to the love of God. We have to love them so much that that's really what we seek. Um, I, I think something that I, is unhealthy in our culture, and it's something we see both in video games and in many popular movies, is that it's a very black and white situation where somebody is all bad and somebody is all good. And they create, in some of these movies, a bad guy who is so thoroughly bad and has no redeeming qualities whatsoever. And it churns us up emotionally with hatred. It gives a chance to really hate somebody in an unreserved way and feel vengeance, it, it fosters vengeance, which is a, um, an evil thing and a sin, but it's a very delicious craving once it's been stirred up inside. And then I'm afraid people leave their video game or movie, come out into the world, and they're still craving just, justice, and they're still craving vengeance, and they're looking around for somebody they can you know, like pin the tail on the donkey, they wanna pin on someone, you are a totally evil, bad person, there's nothing good about you, you need to be destroyed. I'm afraid that a lot of our um, entertainment is reinforcing that and feeding our craving for vengeance. You know, there's, uh, people talk so much about um, you know, sex in the movies or even violence in the movies. People don't seem to realize vengeance in the movies is just as much a sin for Christians. It's just as much damaging to the soul. Um, but it, it's something that gets so stirred up. It seems like it's perfectly all right to go out there being, feeling vengeful toward people. St. Isaac of Syria said, Love sinners but despise their deeds. Remember that you share in the stench of Adam, and you also are clothed in his infirmity. To the one who has need of ardent prayer and soothing words, do not give a reproof instead. Do not reprove him unless you destroy him and his soul would be required from your hands. Imitate doctors who use cold things against fevers. And that is the pattern we see in the Desert Fathers really throughout Orthodox history, that if someone is penitent, what the the spiritual father confessor needs to do is to comfort and reassure them. And if somebody is not penitent, then maybe they need to be pushed a little bit so they will recognize their sin, stop blaming it on other people. Somebody said, when you go to confession, if you feel like it's going to take a long explanation <laughs> to explain why you did something, then maybe you haven't thought this through enough to make a confession. You need to be able to say, this is my fault, this is the part that I did wrong, and not have to justify it with this long explanation. That's one of the, one of the ways you can judge. We did, of course, just see this wonderful example in a few days ago. Um, with the young man that forgave the murderer of his brother, have all of you seen that? Does everybody know what i 'm talking about i just i don 't know whether I need to recap the story if anybody missed it, but um, it was a terrible thing where this policewoman accidentally got off at the wrong floor, went into her what she thought was her apartment, saw a young man there, and shot him dead and then realized that she was in the wrong place so she was tried this past week and the brother of the murdered man said from the witness box that that he didn't judge her and he didn't hate her and he didn't want her to have to rot rot in jail he didn't have those feelings he said i wish you didn't have to go to prison at all i forgive you and and then he said can i can i hug her and the judge said yes and so it's a wonderful video you can see on youtube that um You see her from the back and a little bit of his face, and she just is hanging on him and sobbing, and it looks like she's whispering to him, and he's nodding. So it was very, very sweet. And uh, I saw an email yesterday. Somebody said the next thing that happened was the judge herself opened a Bible to John 3.16 and placed it in front of, of the murderer and said, this is where you start. So thanks be to God. It's just amazing. We can get away with that in our nation. You know, maybe the time will come where you can't do something like that anymore. I give thanks for the times that we still can. So I was was going around that circle about how do you do justice? How do you make a judgment that, you know, this is a terrible thing. This is human trafficking. It's really wrong. You have to identify the people doing it. They need to be judged. They need to be stopped. How do you do that and also judge not? How do those two things fit together? I think you can start by picturing a courtroom and picturing where the judge sits. You know, there's that one, the judge's seat right there. The first, most basic way to not judge is don't sit there. (laughs) Don't go sit in the judge's seat. Um, it's not up to you to make that final decision about what will happen to this person. The judgment seat is for God alone, and he will judge on judgment day what this person has made with their entire lifetime. So it's not you. It's not your place to, to be the one who brings about ultimate judgment. I think what our role is, in the meantime, is to be in the courtroom and acting as, as if we are the friend of the accused that we want to help the accused. The accused may be doing evil things and terrible things, and may not want our friendship, you know, may be defiant, may be cocky, boastful about it, and yet because we see what what he doesn't see, we see the judgment that lies ahead, we know that we are also weak and sinful in our own ways. We want to do whatever we can to help the person repent and turn to God. At every Eucharist we pray uh, that prayer of St. John Chrysostom, You came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. We have to keep in mind our solidarity with all a fallen humankind, that we are one with all the sinners everywhere. And that takes away our grounds for self-approval and makes us even more concerned that everybody else find repentance and salvation. We're standing at the head of the army of sinners. And we pray that God will have mercy on us all. Uh, A wonderful quote from St. Isaac of Syria. And what is a merciful heart? It is the heart's burning for all of creation, for men, for birds, for animals, even for demons. At the remembrance and at the sight of them, the merciful man's eyes fill with tears that arise from the great compassion that urges his heart. It grows tender and cannot endure hearing or seeing any injury or slight sorrow to anything in creation. Because of this, such a man continually offers tearful prayer even for irrational animals and for the enemies of truth and for all who harm truth that they may be guarded and forgiven. It naturally implies that we will forgive when the offense is against ourselves. As Jesus warned, if we don't forgive others, God will not forgive us. But what forgiveness entails can be hard to pin down. How do you know when you've forgiven somebody? What does it mean? What are the earmarks of forgiveness? Forgiveness definitely doesn't mean pretending that the injury didn't happen. It does mean making a decision, making a commitment to give up seeking revenge. It means praying that the person will come to repentance, that they will be sorry for what they did, that they'll come to profound repentance and turn to the Lord. We want them to have the salvation that we have. On our part, as far as we're concerned, we release the one who hurt us from this debt, seeing what a much greater debt God has already forgiven us. I find a a prayer that's been useful to me is to say to the Lord, "Um, this person has injured me. I I cancel that debt to whatever extent I'm able to. I cancel the debt. I don't want that to be counted against him. All of us are so full of sin, certainly has many other things you can judge him on, but I'm going to ask you not to count that one against him. This is different from continuing a relationship, though. I think the reason many people have trouble forgiving is they don't realize that forgiveness addresses only the past. Now there's the present. Now there's the future. Forgiveness does not mean that you have to resume a relationship with this person. Forgiveness does not mean you have to trust them. Those are two different things. Forgiveness on one side, trust on the other. They may not have earned your trust. It may take them a long time to earn your trust again. So you don't have to put yourself in a dangerous situation emotionally or physically or anything. You can forgive, and that's a closed door, but you don't have to go on in a relationship with them if, if you feel like that's not something that you'd be safe at. You need to feel that you're safe. You have a right to that. Every situation is a little bit different. That's kind of the principle is you release the person from the punishment that he deserves specifically for his sins against you and you have no judgment on him otherwise about the rest of his life, that, that doesn't matter to you. That's totally up to God. The reluctance to forgive often has to do with that fear of continuing to be hurt. So in the tranquility of God's love, we can know that ultimately nothing can hurt us. Our treasure is in Christ. Our treasure is in heaven. It's a very hard lesson. It may take even a lifetime to learn that there's nothing that can be taken away from me um, that will really hurt me. Uh, St. John Chrysostom has a wonderful essay on this, that no hurt can come to a human being except what we inflict on ourselves. What we inflict on ourselves through our sins, through our damaging the community of God and the trust of those around us. It's, It's really our sins that hurt us the most. So it can take a lifetime to to really be convinced of this, that there's nothing that could be taken away from us that would actually ultimately hurt us because our treasure is in Christ. Um, Jesus said, Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. So when we're when we're hurt by another person, we it's because we think somebody has stolen part of our treasure. The process of being healed in Christ and becoming able to give forgiveness is the realization that our real treasure is elsewhere. It is secure where nobody can hurt it. Um, I once was talking about somebody I knew, I said, that person gets my goat, I'm gonna have to start keeping my goat somewhere else. (laughs) So that's it, maybe you just need to move your goat so so it doesn't bother you anymore. You might not think of it, but we do actually face a very great spiritual danger when someone hurts us. The danger is of falling into a um, self-comforting kind of self-righteousness. We pay so much attention to the victimhood because it's the opposite of seeing yourself as a sinner, of recognizing that you have hurt other people. Um, When we focus on just how much we've been a victim, we th- we think that victims are sinless, right? There's are sinless victims. And pointing a finger at another person appears to mean that nobody can point a finger at you, like protects you from that. The injury that you sustained can definitely be real, objectively real, objectively unjust, and it might require a response that serves justice. But all the same, we have to remember that establishing The victimhood as the core of our identity will poison us. St. Paul says we have to take care that no root of bitterness springs up. That's a a temptation, I think, when you have been hurt, to kind of build your whole identity around that hurt. And that's the root of bitterness that springs up. And it goes a long way to blind us to our own sins. Just to be aware of that and try to... Try to resist that thought as it starts to try to take root. There are, of course, among our saints, there are so many with powerful stories of forgiving evil, forgiving evil against them, and in many cases winning the salvation of the person who injured them. Many times um, when someone was uh, being tortured, (coughs) tortured to death, or sacrificed and martyred for the cause of Christ, onlookers, the the soldiers, even the torturers can be converted to Christ just by the witness of their suffering. So that's what we have to hope for, that even the most evil people can be turned around and put all their trust in Christ and come to to forgiveness, come to salvation. Um, I think a good example of someone who who exemplifies this is St. Nikolai Velimirovich, <clears throat> um, how many of you have heard of St. Nikolai? I don't know how well-known. He's moderately well-known here, but he's a, like more of an East Coast St. icons uh, kind of a saint. He was a Serbian bishop in the last century, and he spoke out courageously against Nazism and eventually was arrested and spent some time in Dachau. So he knew something, had some firsthand experience with forgiving people that had hurt him. And he wrote a beautiful prayer that I'm going to read now called Bless My Enemies. It's it's just so beautiful. It just exemplifies so perfectly the kind of spirit we would want to cultivate in Christ and that was possible for St. Nikolai to cultivate. It's truly been said that the test of all our spiritual activities and disciplines, the ultimate test is do you love your enemies? And St. Nikolai gives us a good picture of what that would look like. He said, Bless my enemies, O Lord, even I bless them, and I do not curse them. Enemies have driven me into your embrace more than friends have. Friends have bound me to the earth. Enemies have loosed me from the earth and have demolished all my aspirations in the world. Enemies have made me a stranger in worldly realms and an extraneous inhabitant of the world. Just as a hunted animal finds safer shelter than an unhunted animal does, so have I, persecuted by enemies, found the safest sanctuary, having ensconced myself beneath your tabernacle, where neither friends nor enemies can slay my soul. Bless my enemies, O Lord. Even I bless them and do not curse them. They, rather than I, have confessed my sins before the world. They have punished me whenever I have hesitated to punish myself. They have tormented me whenever I tried to flee from torments. They have scolded me whenever I have flattered myself. They have spat upon me whenever I filled myself with arrogance. Bless my enemies, O Lord. Even I bless them and do not curse them. Whenever I have made myself wise, they have called me foolish. Whenever I've made myself mighty, they mocked me as though I were a dwarf. Whenever I've wanted to lead people, they've shoved me into the background. Whenever I've rushed to enrich myself, they've prevented me with an iron hand. Whenever I thought that I would sleep peacefully, they've wakened me from sleep. Whenever I've tried to build a home for a long and tranquil life, they've demolished it and driven me out. Truly enemies have cut me loose from the world and have stretched out my hands to the hem of your garment. Bless my enemies, O Lord. Even I bless them and do not curse them. Bless them and multiply them. Multiply them and make them even more bitterly against me so that my fleeing to you may have no return, so that all hope in men may be scattered like cobwebs, so that absolute serenity may begin to reign in my soul, so that my heart may become the grave of my two evil twins, arrogance and anger, so that I might amass all my treasure in heaven, ah, so that I may for once be freed from self-deception, which has entangled me in the dreadful web of illusory life. Enemies have taught me to know what hardly anyone knows, that a person has no enemies in the world except himself. One hates his enemies only when he fails to realize that they are not enemies, but cruel friends. It is truly difficult for me to say who has done me more good and who has done me more evil in the world, friends or enemies. Therefore bless, O Lord, both my friends and my enemies. A slave curses enemies, for he does not understand, but a son blesses them for he understands. For a son knows that his enemies cannot touch his life. Therefore he freely steps among them and prays to God for them. Bless my enemies, O Lord. Even I bless them and do not curse them. That's um, That always chokes me up. That's just so beautiful. It's like a height of spiritual wisdom that you can hardly hold to approach, you know, you you don't know how you could ever reach that point, but that he did, it's just beautiful to look at it and hear him describe it in such a powerful way. I quote this prayer in my book, The Illumined Heart, and um, also I'm sure you can find it online, and the Serbian Archdiocese published some books with this prayer and other prayers and writings of his in it. It's hard to imagine being capable of that much love. We don't seem to have the capacity for it. Our souls and all the souls of humankind were damaged in the fall of Adam and Eve. So we no longer see the presence of God in all of creation. We no longer see his love abiding and reaching through it, pervading everything and inviting us to participate in his love. We're easily frightened. We're anxious about being liked or respected. We readily succumb to the lies of the evil one. We don't perceive how God permeates all creation, even within the hearts of our friends and our enemies, whether they want him there or not. We are seriously wounded by sin, by our own sins and those of others. Sin is not a bad deed, but it's a condition that we live in, a sickening environment. Like air pollution, we all contribute to it and we all suffer from it. We are more wounded than we let other people know, more wounded than we ourselves know. Though we might appear to function all right day by day, inside we bear terrible burdens of fear and loneliness. As Jesus said, a sick tree cannot bear good fruit. We're injured at the core and at the root. And it will take a lifetime to heal us. It is the truth that sets us free, day by day, moment by moment, as we take every thought captive for Christ. Second Corinthians 10.5. Take every thought captive for Christ. Learning, as we said this morning, to pray constantly, to conquer the passions through fasting. And this afternoon to strive to show love to everyone that we meet. We're being spiritually healed, and as that progresses, we, we abide in a paradoxical condition of joy-filled repentance. Um, remember, that's a, a word that St. John Climachus made up, carmolope. It's a combination of penitence and joy in the same word put together. Um, our repentance is full of joy. Our joy has a, has a core of repentance at the center as we recognize the tragedy of our brokenness, and we know that God sees all the way through our darkness and knows much more about that darkness than we can bear to know, and yet he loves us completely. He loved us enough to die for us on the cross. He loves us so much better than we love ourselves. So the first step in theosis and drawing near to God is humility. At every liturgy, we Take to ourselves those words from St. Paul from 1 Timothy 1.15. We are the chief of sinners, the first of sinners. A healed person is a useful person. The impossible command to love other people begins to be accomplished when someone is able to maintain this discipline of loving humility. I'll close with a few words about St. <clears throat> John the Evangelist. Where is he? Is he up here? He's to the right of the choir stand, right there. Yeah, the, the older man is kind of leaning forward. This is He's usually depicted that way, kind of leaning. You know, when you have somebody with a book, it means they wrote a book or wrote a um, wrote an essay or something. Often the scroll, it's the same thing, because they wrote something. So there he is leaning with his um, gospel, Gospel of St. John, and he did get to be an old man. You remember that um, the Lord from the cross said, you know, take... Take Mary to be your mother. What an astounding thing that was, if you picture having the Theotokos living in your home and being there as as her child to care for her for the rest of her life. St. Jerome says that as St. John got older, he he reached a point where he couldn't walk and they had to carry him into the liturgy every morning. And that all he ever said, he kept repeating the same thing urgently. He would say, my little children love one another. Love one another. You must love one another. And he kept saying this over and over again. And you think about, think about what St. John had been through in his life. <clears throat> For three years, he was present with our Lord throughout his earthly ministry. All that time, he kept hearing Jesus' words and kept viewing the miracles that he was doing. He was there at the Transfiguration, and got to see this event when Christ shone like the sun. When it was the night before the crucifixion, John sat and the Lord Jesus wrapped himself with a towel and washed John's feet. At the Last Supper, it says that John was leaning his head against Jesus' chest there. He knew himself in the Gospel of John. He always refers to himself as the beloved disciple, the one that the Lord loved. So he knew he was loved. And then he stood at the foot of the cross and heard the Lord say, to care for the virgin, behold your mother, woman, behold your son. And John took care of her for the rest of her life. Uh, after After Saturday, after the events of Friday afternoon and Saturday, he got the word early Sunday that the Lord had risen from the dead, that the tomb was empty. So it was John who ran with Peter and saw the empty tomb. And then that night, the resurrected Lord appeared among them. And if all that isn't enough to think of all the things that St. John contained in his experience, he had a vision later in life that he recorded in the book of Revelation, where he was allowed to look down through history to the very end, to the end of time, and see the final judgment and see the violence and destruction of the last days of life on earth and the final triumphant return of the Lord. So when you think of all that was in the mind and experience and the history and memory of St. John the Evangelist, all he kept saying was, my little children love one another, love one another. Why would that be the most urgent thing that he said? And Jerome tells us that people would ask him that. Why, Why is this the one thing you just keep harping on over and over? And John would say, it is the Lord's command, and if you keep this command, that alone is sufficient to love one another, that alone is sufficient. So that's all we really need to know. Prioritize loving one another. What we do in our lives matters, our daily choices, our daily decisions, one by one, it's turning you either into a goat or a sheep. All those little decisions you make. Everything that we say, that we do, in every secret place, every public place, every day for the rest of our lives, Everything we do and every thought we have happens in the presence of God. So you must let your light shine. Beloved, let your light shine. For he who is in you knows you, and he loves you. And so, as St. John said, let us love one another. Amen. Thank you, dear Lord. Thank you. (laughs) Are we going to um, have, an, have more discussion group right now. I should say, I'm um, sorry. I wanted to let you know that I'm going to have to leave very quickly. I think we have a, a 345, which is um, two hours from now that we're aiming at. I've got to get to the Goldendale Monastery tonight. And then tomorrow after the liturgy, we're driving on to Wenatchee, Washington, where I'm speaking at the Antiochian Church there tomorrow afternoon, then back to Goldendale for two more nights, so it's a lot of driving for dear Jennifer to do. She says she likes driving, so I'm glad for that. Um, anyway, I'd want us to have a good question and answer period. We've got about two hours, so you've got time for a group discussion. There's a question for the discussion, and then we'll come back in here and have some Q&A and discussion all as a, a whole group. Thank you. Kim.